Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on December 20th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... So, but these other sorts of policies that don't mention intelligent design, but they talk about critical analysis of evolution, or they portray evolution as controversial... Um, these started to propagate. That's Nicholas Matsky. He's an evolutionary biologist currently on a fellowship at the Australian National University in Canberra. Ten years ago, he was with the National Center for Science Education, the NCSE, which found itself advising the plaintiff's legal team in the famous Kitzmiller versus Dover evolution case. December 20th is the 10th anniversary of the decision in that case by Judge John Jones. I'll talk to Nick about the trial for about 10 minutes, and then we'll talk about the continuing efforts by the anti-evolution crowd after Dover to get creationism into public schools. Nick has a paper in the latest issue of the journal Science about that subject done in a very clever way. We spoke by phone. Nick, can you give us the, the quick summary of what that trial was all about and how were you involved? Sure. So, yeah, Kitzmiller uh, versus Dover was a court case. Uh, it was actually filed in 2004, and the litigation went uh, throughout 2005, and the trial was in October 2005, and the decision came down December 20th of uh, 2005. And it was the first trial, the first and so far only trial, to judge the constitutionality of what's called intelligent design, or what I like to call, you know, intelligent design creationism, which I think is a more accurate term. Um, sometimes people call it ID. And uh, the trial was a school board in Pennsylvania had passed a policy um, requiring teachers to read a statement that uh, endorsed intelligent design and referred students to this intelligent design textbook called Of Pandas and People. Um, and this was going to be, you know, sort of required, uh, uh, the statement was going to be read to the high school biology students who, you know, are 14 and 15 years old um, throughout the Dover Area School District, which is in uh, southern central Pennsylvania. Um, and their parents objected. And so a number of plaintiffs, led by Tammy Kitzmiller, um, but another 10 parents were involved, um, contacted the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Center for Science Education and uh, Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And the legal uh, groups filed a lawsuit um, that led to this case. And uh, so there was a six-week trial. There was a fair bit of drama. And, uh, uh, but in the end, the federal judge, who was actually a, a, a George W. Bush appointee, he was a Republican appointee, issued a very strong pro-science decision um, declaring that intelligent design was creationism relabeled and that it wasn't uh, science. And so it was unconstitutional to teach in a uh, public school biology class. Didn't he refer to the breathtaking inanity, to quote him? He did. That He referred to the breathtaking inanity of the school board. Because the school board, you know, every school board has uh, legal insurance and they have, uh, you know, an, an attorney who's their contracted attorney, right, who they can consult for legal advice. And they had consulted theirs before this case, and the attorney had said, you know, don't do this. You're, you're not going to win the case. And actually, if you, uh, you know, if you go against your attorney's advice and then you do get sued, um, then you're actually, your, your insurance doesn't cover that, right? Because um, the whole point is that the lawyer is supposed to keep you out of trouble. So, so they ended up sticking, you know, the school district got stuck with, it wasn't the full bill in the end because the ACLU and, and other attorneys gave them a break. But... But yeah, they ended up being liable for uh, the legal costs 
of the case, which were significant because it ran for a whole year. So, yeah, that was part of why the judge says in the decision the school board had this breathtaking inanity um, to carry this out. You know, the school board, it was 2004 when they passed this, and that was right during the re-election of George W. Bush, and it was kind of the conservative ascendancy was sort of the mentality that was going on then. And there was this idea that, you know, Bush got, is going to get reelected. He's going to appoint a bunch of conservatives to the Supreme Court. So if we want to get have a test case for intelligent design, you know, now is the time to do it. The appeals will go up to the Supreme Court and uh, we'll have a revolutionary ruling, you know, that'll show that this stuff can be taught in the schools. The downstream logic involves you know, bringing uh, religion back to culture as if there isn't plenty of religion and culture already. But but that was part of the idea, you know, that sort of bringing God back into the public schools was part of the motivation. We should say that the, the legal argument uh, on the part of the plaintiffs was that this action by the school board was a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment in that what they were really foisting upon the children in public schools was a variation on a particular religious viewpoint. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, the Constitution says that the government, you know, the exact language is, well, it says Congress, but but other uh, amendments have applied this to all government, uh, shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, right, which is a very strong statement. So that's the Establishment Clause. And there have been previous rulings about creationism, um, saying that it's unconstitutional. You know, anyone can hold that view if they want. It's a free country. Um, but teaching it in a government school is what the debate is about. And uh, and so creationism had been ruled unconstitutional. And, and Judge Jones, in this decision, said intelligent design is basically the same stuff as creationism, despite, you know, frequent and vocal denials from the intelligent design movement that what they were doing was creationism, right? That was kind of the whole point of intelligent design, was to avoid the word creationism. Um, but despite that, the judge uh, said, no, it's it's the same stuff. The Supreme Court has already ruled that this is unconstitutional to teach in a government school. And uh, that's the same ruling that he came down with for intelligent design. So, um, so yeah, it was a quite a strong uh, ruling. And what was your role? Oh, yeah. So my role, I, I had started working at NCSE, the National Center for Science Education, which is the nonprofit. It's really the only nonprofit devoted to defending science education in the U.S., especially from creationist attempts to get stuff into schools. But also these days they work on climate change, which is now another issue that is cropping up as being problematic uh, for politicians um, in schools. And so I started working there in 2004. It was kind of, we, you know, everyone could tell that this issue was gaining ahead of steam then. And so they were hiring more staff and I got hired. Um, and then when the case got filed, I was sort of the new guy. Plus I was sort of a specialist in intelligent design, even then, you know, I'd spent a lot of time arguing with them and writing articles about them and stuff. Um, so I became kind of the research guy on the case. So I worked closely with the lawyers, educating them about the science arguments that are involved and also the history of creationism. And then I ended up doing a lot of the background research on, uh, there were two major areas. One was the cross-examination of Michael Behe, uh, who's you know one of their leading science science e type guys, and um, and then also the history of intelligent design and where did that phrase come from? So and both of those things ended up being used in the court case. I didn't testify in the court case. I wasn't an official you know expert with a PhD. Um, I've since gotten a PhD, but I didn't have one then. Those were the two big areas: the cross examination of Michael Behe and where did the term intelligent design come from? You know, I was at opening arguments. 
if I always say to people, if if that trial had been a fight, the referee would have stopped it in the first round. Yeah, I remember some uh, some journalists said, you know, this, this is like a football game that's 100 to zero, and it's still the first quarter. So one thing that I discovered, I didn't really know this ahead of time, but but talk is cheap, right? So if you you if you have a movement, you can you can talk big if nobody's ever really challenging you. Even if people even if people are challenging you with arguments, you know, if you don't listen to them, then you can just brush it off. It doesn't really matter. But in a court case, you can't really do that. In a court case, it's sort of this constrained environment, and uh, you have an independent judge there who hasn't, you know, probably hasn't followed the issue at all. Um, in any substantive way, and so then it, these these arguments about what is scientific authority, you know, what is real expertise versus kind of fake expertise. Do arguments really make sense or not? And does the evidence, you know, do you really have the evidence, or are you just talking like you have evidence? Those things really become apparent in a court case, which actually surprised me. People were skeptical of the ability of a judge and a court to uh, deal with evidence, but actually, if you think about it. Judges deal with evidence all the time. That's sort of what they do. And actually, these days, many science cases, many many legal cases, have complex scientific content. You know, because they're medical malpractice suits, there are environmental damage cases, right? And so, judges are actually pretty good these days at dealing with uh, technical science. If you have, you know, it takes a lot of work. You have to have lawyers that have learned, learned the relevant topics, you know, and they have to be able to interact with experts and interact with technical, you know, evidence and publications and things like that. So, um, so it was a, you know, for me, it was kind of a positive experience because a lot of people are very negative about the legal system and there was a lot of legitimate critiques, but I found in this case, things actually worked like they're supposed to work. Okay. So the, the past is prologue and that was 10 years ago. And today and we're talking on uh, the 17th of December in the evening, my time. It's the 18th in the, in the afternoon, your time in Australia. Today, you had a, a paper come out in the journal Science, a very prestigious journal. And it is uh, a fascinating and, if I can say, hilarious paper. Why don't you say what you did and what your paper found? Sure. So... So this paper started, you know, because I had been working at NCSE back from 2004 to 2007. You know, I had worked on, um, you know, there wasn't just the Kitzmiller case going on then. There were proposals back then for bills, either intelligent design bills or various kinds of critical analysis of evolution, quote unquote, uh, bills um, that had been proposed in state legislatures uh, even back then. And after the Kitzmiller case, intelligent design kind of died out as a legal strategy. I mean, the proponents are still around, but it was it was pretty clear no school board was going to touch it with a 10-foot pole after that decision and the, the damages that the school board had to pay. So, But these other sorts of policies that don't mention intelligent design, but they talk about critical analysis of evolution or they portray evolution as controversial, um, these started to propagate. And so, you know, it was on my radar back then. Um, after I worked at NCSE, I went to graduate school. Um, I went to Berkeley and got a PhD. I studied phylogenetics, which is the study of the phylogenies. Phylogenies are the evolutionary trees, you know, showing the relationships of different species through common ancestry. Um, so I learned a lot about that and then I went off to do a postdoc in Tennessee. Um, and in Tennessee, they have, passed, they have ended up passing one of these bills in 2012. 
And there wasn't a ton I could do about it since I only moved there in 2013, but it kind of stuck in my craw, you know. I was like, this, that's annoying that the whole state, you know, here I am studying evolutionary biology at the University of Tennessee, which is a, a pretty uh, major uh, research institution, and yet the, the legislature has passed this bill that says evolution is controversial. So it just sort of stuck in my craw. And then, um, but over the years, I had kept in touch with NCSC people, and we had always talked about, you know, we're like, these bills, they look like they're just being copied and modified. You know, we should, we should do a phylogeny at some point, you know, do an evolutionary analysis of them. And it became clear this year that there were enough of these bills to uh, do a phylogeny, you know, because NCSE had been accumulating them year after year, so it had gotten up to being about 60 bills. And uh, it was also clear that, well, hey, the 10th anniversary of Kitzmiller versus Dover is coming up, and, you know, science journals are going to want some kind of update on what's been going on. And if we're going to do that, we might as well, we might as well just mix in the phylogeny with that so that we can show how these policies have evolved how the anti-evolution policies have evolved through time. So I dropped everything back in July and August and uh, for about a month crashed through this analysis where I uh, uh, took all those bills, lined all, up all the texts, coded all the characteristics, all the variations between these texts, and then ran them through the standard phylogenetic analyses um, that we use for DNA. We use them for dinosaurs. They get used to study virus evolution. Those same programs can be used on texts that have been copied and modified. Um, so that, that's basically how this paper came about. So what did you actually uncover when you did this laborious text analysis? Ah, so there's a couple of main results that are sort of the technical results of this. Because, I mean, part of the point was, yeah, haha, creationism evolves, which is, you know, I think it's a useful point to make. Um, but there were some technical results, which is, you know, how strong is the signal of common ancestry when you have something with, you know, with animal species, we know they have common ancestry. That's been immensely well established. But if you have a collection of textual documents, you don't know starting out how much of that is due to copying and modification and how much of it is due to, you know, independent composition by different writers and things like that. And again, these are the uh, these are bills in various legislatures around the country. Yeah, exactly. So um, every legislative session in every state, which is either every year or every two years, um, there are you know hundreds of bills get proposed on all sorts of topics, and each one of those gets published. And these days, they all go online um, when they're published. So the publication just means the bill has been introduced by somebody, um, and so you have that text and it has a date on it. Um, so NCSE has, has a database. It's online, actually. If you Google, you know, creationism legislation database, you'll see this database of all these bills that have been proposed and sometimes passed through the years. Um, so I took those, and uh, uh, yeah, you take those texts, and you yeah, you do this kind of exhaustive analysis where you line up all the all the characteristics, and you know, say, does it have this word? Does it not have this word? Does it use this phrase? Does it not use this phrase? And those are just characteristics that when a text is copied, those characteristics get copied. Um, and on occasion, they get modified. And by tracing which bills share these variants, you can tell what the copying history is. So that was the basic method for doing it. The first big test was how strong is that signal of common ancestry? Um, and basically, you can compare it to a null hypothesis. And, you know, in physics, they talk about how many sigmas above the random noise are you, you know, to get a signal. Um, we can do the same thing with phylogenetics, and 
In this case, it was about 12 sigmas above the null um, was what the signal of common ancestry was. So that's that's pretty strong evidence for copying. Right. I mean, usually the, the five sigmas is the uh, is the test, right? Yeah, yeah. Usually because you want, you know, if it's one sigma, the chance of, of it being a chance result, right, could be one in three. And if it's two sigmas, it might be one in 20. But yeah, if it's five sigmas, then it's pretty clearly not a not a chance result. And if it's 12, you know, then you're a long ways from a chance result. So so that kind of justified the basic approach that, look, this really does look like a, you know, descent with modification in the sense of text where the texts are being copied and modified, um, which is really all Darwin's descent with modification is, right? Like genomes get copied every generation, the DNA gets copied, and it gets very slowly modified, and that's how you uh, infer the evolutionary history. So. So yeah, it's interesting how the same logic can be used in these two different cases. Yeah, and so once I had that data set, then then that's the fun part. You get to run it through all the standard phylogenetic analyses. So uh, one thing was to do that. You know, what's the sigma for the for uh, rejecting the null hypothesis? Um, another one that I did is uh, we can do an analysis with uh, dates in the tree. So you don't just get a tree that sort of shows the relationships on which things are closer to each other, you actually get an estimate of uh, what time did the copying events happen, which bills were copied from which other bills, and what the probabilities are of those. So I identified about six cases where uh, a certain bill was identified with a greater than 90% probability to be the direct ancestor of another bill. So, I mean, anyone can look at texts and say, oh, these texts are sort of similar. They probably share some kind of copying history, but but with these phylogenetic analyses, with the newest methods, you can say there's a 93% chance that, you know, this 2005 Alabama anti-evolution bill was copied from this particular 2004 uh, Alabama bill. And so I think that's kind of a useful quantitative result that was part of the reason I think science was interested in this, because it kind of went beyond just, you know, making the generic statement that creationism evolves and gives you a kind of a detailed estimate of the history what the copying was, you know, just from looking at the texts without, you know, we could try and go interviewing all these conservative fundamentalist legislators to ask them if they even remember what they did back in 2005, 2006, right? But, you know, it's interesting that using the evolutionary tools, we can reconstruct how these anti-evolution policies evolve. And what what is that actually telling us? Does that mean that there's a small band of people who have contacts around the country and and they're all kind of cribbing each other's work to try to figure out how to modify it enough so that it gets through? I think that's a good way to describe it. It's, um, you know, in each state that has these problems coming up, there's usually one legislator or a couple legislators that propose these bills every year. Um, and sometimes they copy their own bill, um, but very often they start off by copying some other state's bill. And actually, the most popular ones to copy, the first wave of this was kind of a bunch of bills in Alabama, and then a number of states copied the 2005 Alabama bill. And then uh, there was an event in 2006 in Louisiana where a school board had a policy that actually got passed. And in 2008, the legislators in Alabama copied that policy um, from from the school district in Louisiana, and then they combined it with text from the Alabama policies and produce this new sort of species of anti-evolution bill. And then that bill from 2008 in Louisiana has been copied around. One version got passed in Tennessee in 2012. 
Um, and then there's been various uh, versions since then. Um, one thing that you can see in the phylogeny, which is, you know, online, is that that 2008 bill that uh, combined that text from those previous two versions, it introduced this um, sort of strange feature of instead of just depicting evolution as controversial, which is what the bills originally did, it, it says uh, teachers, it based in, I'm paraphrasing, but it says teachers are encouraged to uh, critically analyze evolution, the origins of life, human cloning, and global warming. Um, that's kind of the, uh, the, the four topics that they, that they do. So now instead of just having evolution subjected to crit critical analysis, we have these other topics, including climate change. And that change was introduced, well, it was introduced in 2006 in the Washington School District in Louisiana. It got passed statewide in, in Louisiana in 2008, and it's been passed in Tennessee. So now there's 11 million citizens in two states are subjected to this policy. Um, and then that's the new strategy that even the Discovery Institute has adopted now in their new model bill, um, has those four topics. So one remark I make in the paper is that anti-evolutionism is kind of broken out of its traditional boundaries a little bit, and now the same kind of anti-science rhetoric is being applied to climate change, for instance. Human cloning is in there. I think it's thrown in, you know, human cloning isn't exactly a scientific controversy. It's more of a, it's not even, it's sort of a legal controversy or a moral controversy, except everyone actually agrees that human cloning probably isn't a great idea, so it's not even really a controversy. But I think they throw it into there to just sort of muddy the waters a little bit. So anyway, with the phylogenetic analysis, we can tell, you know, when do these steps happen and how influential are they on future anti-evolution legislation, um, which I think is a useful result. And you mentioned the Discovery Institute. We should explain what that is. Oh, right. Yeah. So Discovery Institute, um, they've been the leading, they're a think tank in Seattle, um, but they're the leading group promoting intelligent design. Um, and some, several of their experts were uh, in the Kitzmiller-Dover case in 2005, were uh, Discovery Institute fellows. Several other experts from Discovery Institute backed out of that case for complex reasons that uh, people disagree on. But um, since then, they've, they now claim they never wanted intelligent design to be taught in public schools, or they never wanted a policy to mandate it. Um, that I think that their history is revisionist and incorrect. There's clear evidence that they did want that to happen back in the 1990s. Um, but once it became clear it was a legal loser, they dropped that idea. And so they've been promoting these, what they originally called Academic Freedom Acts. With that Louisiana bill, they started, been, they started to be called Science Education Acts. Um, now, you know, right after I did this analysis, I saw there's a new Discovery Institute policy um, that attacks these four topics. Um, and that looks like that's going to be their main strategy in the future, is to uh, try and link evolution to global warming and these other topics as being controversial and trying to get policies passed that, that uh, do that depiction um, in government schools. So the key idea is that they try to get this legislation written and they try to get it passed, and you don't mention the words creationism or intelligent design, but without mentioning those words, you try to cast doubt on the scientific validity of evolution and these other subjects. Yeah, that's exactly what they're, that's exactly what they're going for. Um, you know, and it's, uh, and it's quite frustrating as a science education, you know, uh, advocate or a person who watches the issue, um, because 
the one virtue, I guess you could say, of the older policies was that at least it was clear what they were doing when it was creationism or intelligent design. Right? That's kind of a positive suggestion. And you can, uh, in, in the political or the media arena or in a court, you can make an assessment, right? Is that a religious view or not? What's the history of it? In this case where they don't mention those words and they just have this kind of critical analysis or teach the controversy strategy, it becomes more difficult um, because in people who haven't heard of this issue at all, if you just ask a guy on the street, like, you know, shouldn't we analyze different sides of these issues? You know, it just sounds fair. It's a very appealing sort of common sense uh, strategy. And only if you're familiar with this history of how these strategies have been rejected in court and then trimmed down and then rejected in court and trimmed down again. And then often there's not just court cases, but the sorts of threats of lawsuits will sometimes influence these policies also. When you know that history, then it becomes, and you look at the people who've been sponsoring these bills, it becomes very clear that this new critical analysis strategy, teach the controversy strategy, is the same old junk, you know, just with a new label um, in an attempt to be vague enough to avoid uh, court scrutiny. And so, you know, that was part of the point of this analysis. People had discussed how this was going on, but if you can sort of show it in a phylogeny and show how these strategies mutate through time, you're, you're able to popularize this, this fact and this sort of historical fact a little bit better. Um, and it puts people on their guard a little bit. So I think those are useful things that come out of this paper also. I can, I can leave you the last word there, unless there's something else that uh, I didn't bring up that you want to mention. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I think there's a few important takeaway points, right, that it would be worth uh, people hearing about. One is really the importance of the National Center for Science Education. Um, I couldn't have done this research without them being there every day you know, keeping track of what bills are being proposed, where did they come from, who were the sponsors, and what the language is. So that requires there to be a permanent presence, right? And any nonprofit, you know, is always kind of, you know, the state, among, in the nonprofit world, the, the statement about nonprofits is that you have to make a profit to be a successful nonprofit. And that just means, you know, nonprofits require, they have staff, they have to pay health insurance and salaries. Um, and so anyone who's not already a member of the National Center for Science Education should look them up and should consider donating or becoming a member, um, getting their newsletter, uh, and following the issue because they're just a very important group to have. The second takeaway, you know, is that uh, creationism evolves and sometimes those new strategies succeed. So I think a lot of people, it might, they might not have been on their radar that we have two states that have a statewide policy that requires, or it doesn't require, but it encourages teachers to um, critically analyze, to introduce sort of false criticisms of evolution and global warming science. And it also more explicitly prevents, it tries to prevent administrators from doing anything about it if they have a teacher that's doing this kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod strategy. And because we know there's a certain proportion of biology teachers, even today, that are still creationists and would really love to teach some anti-evolutionism even if they feel required to teach evolution from the science standards uh, that are passed in a particular state, they would like they would love to introduce some some creationism and and often they don't care if they if they get to use the word creationism or not. They just want to introduce some of these long list of bogus arguments that the creationist movement has produced. Um, you know, and really creationism and intelligent design they never had a lot of positive content anyway. Ninety you know ninety nine percent of what intelligent design was about was just you know, sort of floating these, you know, if you're in the field, quite bizarre and wrong criticisms of evolutionary theory 
based on misunderstandings, you know, and there's thousands of these at this point, but they're, they're popular. They're usually these criticisms, they're good enough to make sense, you know, if you're not educated in the topic. And so the kind of thing that in a college classroom or a graduate school class, they would never, you know, they wouldn't be credible, but in a high school class with 14 year olds, you know, they could be pretty influential. So, so it's worth alerting people to the fact that these bills exist and alerting people to how these strategies change their time. So that you can be aware if it comes up in your state, you know, what's going on, follow the issue, get involved, um, contact the National Center for Science Education. And then the third takeaway, I think, is just, uh, you know, we have this interesting science. It's interesting to think about how can we apply evolutionary methods to new topics. So things like legislation, memes, right? We, this kind of study is called a philomimetic study, which means the phylogeny of a meme, and a meme is a cultural object. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how far we can push this analogy. I think that could be some interesting science uh, there in the future. So those are my takeaway points. And the two states, again, in, in which the legislation is currently in effect are? Right. Uh, the states of Louisiana and Tennessee, which, you know, not coincidentally are two states that have had problems with evolution, you know, since, since the 1920s. The Scopes Monkey Trial was in Tennessee, in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925, right? So, so these issues go way back. Um, but those are exactly the states that are most vulnerable to these kinds of policies. When you say they've had trouble with evolution... You don't mean that they're not evolving. You mean they're having they're having trouble with evolution in the schools. Yeah, yeah, they've had trouble with evolution in the education system. Yeah, they may also have. I mean, there's there have been some cases right where if if a doctor or a farmer or someone is is uneducated on evolutionary issues, right, it creates some risks because we know that organisms are adapting right now. So we know diseases can adapt to be drug resistant. If you don't follow the right policies about use of antibiotics, for example, and the same thing can happen with uh, pests and pesticides and herbicides and, and invasive weeds. So, so yeah, it's it's actually the case that it could be problematic. Um, but uh, but yeah, the main point, right, is that certain states politically have have a long tradition of uh, you know first attempting to ban evolution. That was what happened in the 1920s. Um, and then creation science, which was, you know, Louisiana in 1981 passed a creation science bill um, that got overturned by the Supreme Court. But those are the states that have had these issues um, in neighboring states that have had these issues for a long time. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also check out the video of Jimmy Kimmel attempting to run on a surface with minimal friction. It doesn't go well. Remember, when trying to run, friction is your friend. And follow us on Twitter, where you get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.